Let's look now at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is what the meaning of his name, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose... Our fathers and the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. For forty years, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he said in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we come now to your word and we ask that you do, again, the work that only you can do, and that is illumine our hearts. Cause us to see the beauty of your word. Instruct our hearts. uh, Fill our hearts with assurance of the truth of your word. And guide us in the way in which we're to live. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We live in an age in the church where the word uh, gospel has become quite popular. Uh, As far as I can remember, if you go back 30 years ago, the word gospel was really only used in the context of evangelism that you would share the gospel with someone. With the exception of maybe um, the genre of music, people would talk of gospel music, or if you talked about the four gospels, the four first books of the New Testament. But beyond that, the gospel, in that word in and of itself, was really strictly limited to the context of evangelism. But today the word is broadened, and we hear it used in a lot more ways. We have gospel-driven churches and gospel-driven ministries. We have groups like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel. We hear phrases like living out the gospel. There's gospel-centered preaching, and there are books, I did the search this week, literally 
about gospel-centered everything. <laughs> there's gospel-centered parenting, there's gospel-centered husbandry, and, and gospel-centered wife, and gospel-centered teenager, and just it's all of this. And you start to wonder, wait, what does the word gospel mean? I don't think that all of this is negative, by the way. I just think that when we broaden the use of a word, when we use it more and more, as great as the word is, sometimes we may struggle then to think, what does the word actually mean? And I think today's text, as we go through it and look at this narrative, we can see some aspects of the gospel, uh, some elements of the gospel, that will understand more clearly what it is. So it's a big passage. Let's jump right in. We see in the first three verses that Paul and Barnabas are being sent out on a missionary journey. So the gospel has a sending component. The gospel has a component to it that is about being sent. So the church here has prophets and teachers, and these group of men are listed. We have Barnabas, who we already know, listed first probably because he was at the time the chief leader uh, in the church. We're going to see this transition, as we've talked about in in previous weeks, that this would come both in the transition of Saul's leadership to to him being Paul, and we're going to see that happen in this chapter, but also to him being the leader. And as we see by the end of the chapter, it's not Barnabas and Saul, it's now Paul and his companions. Barnabas is still a key person, by the way. We have Simeon called Niger, who was an African church leader. We have Lucius from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya. So there's a lot of diversity. What's interesting with Lucius is if you remember back to chapter 11, we talked about a group that at the time, the church in Jerusalem was sending out the gospel message to reach the Jews. But there were a group from Cyrene and another group from Cyprus who didn't get that message. And somehow, in their ignorance, they began sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Remember that group from chapter 11? And God used it to bring many Gentiles to faith. Well, Lucius was likely one of these people, one of these evangelists. We have Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, we've had a lot of Herods up to this point, and if you're like me, it's hard to keep them straight. So Herod the Tetrarch, he's the son of Herod the Great. Now, we looked at Herod Agrippa last week, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. This is his uncle. Herod the Tetrarch. He's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. And when these young princes, when they were children, what they would do is they would bring in, in a sense, foster brothers for these princes so that they would have companions growing up. And Menaean was a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. So isn't it interesting here how, in God's providence, this lifelong friend, this close friend of Herod, who would kill, have killed, John the Baptist, that this man would then become a leader in the church, this friend of his, and is listed here. And then fifthly, we have Saul. These men are exhorting and instructing the church at Antioch as it grows. And while the church is worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit directs them to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now the fact that the church was worshiping and fasting indicates that they were seeking direction from the Lord. I don't think this was just, I mean, the Lord can work in whatever way he wants, but I don't think this was some surprise to them that this happened. They were seeking the direction of the Lord. It's why they were fasting. Fasting is often used by God's people to do this. It's not used to earn God's favor or to get God's attention. It's rather to focus our attention in prayer on what we're seeking from the Lord. And then Luke records how the Holy Spirit directs them. He says the Holy Spirit said to them, but we don't know exactly what that looks like. He doesn't give us a lot of detail. And he says, to the work that I've specified to them, he doesn't give us the specifics there. But as the narrative unfolds, we see what those specifics are. And that is, 
they were to take the gospel message to Cyprus. And so that's what they do. The entire church here is the sending agency. In other words, these men were not freelancers. They didn't wake up one day and say, we're going to go do this. But they did it in the context of the local church and were sent out by the local church. And then the church together laid their hands on these men to go. So the sending component of the gospel is important to understand because this message of hope that is found in Jesus is not a message that is to be found by others. It's not a message that we lock away in a cave that people go on some long journey up into the mountains to discover. It's not that we're to build compounds as churches in hopes or even by invitation that people are going to come here to hear the gospel message. Invite people to church, nothing wrong with that, but that's not the way the gospel is designed to get out. It has a sending component. That is, we are sending people out with the gospel. We see that Jesus was sent by the Father. Even the gospel story itself is a story of being sent. Jesus was incarnated as a man. He put on flesh and dwelt among us, not only to die for our sins, but for us to see the Word made flesh, for Him to reveal God to us. And in a sense, as we send people out, we see them do the same thing incarnationally, studying culture, learning language, uh, befriending people in order to be a light to them and explain the hope of the gospel. And we want to continue to be a sending church, sending others out. This includes supporting the missionaries that we have and Lord willing, growing in that support. It includes short-term trips, and Lord willing, we'll see more of that going to places with the gospel. But let me say this. The gospel, or the, 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 the work of missions, the, be, the sending component of the gospel is not just for people who have a bent toward missions. The, the missionary command, the great commission, is given to all of us. And none of us can put this aside as just for those special people over there who want to do missions or be missionaries. Rather than saying in my own words, because I think you could think maybe this was my personal bent, and I do have a little bent toward it, um, let me use the words of Derek Thomas, which are convicting and powerful. He writes, Not to have a heart for missions is the same as not having a heart for Jesus Christ. It shows an indifference to what brought the Savior into the world and what drove him to the cross. Missions is the heart of God. It is the beating pulse of the Almighty for the lost souls of men and women. To be cold toward missions reveals an indifference to what lies at the center of God himself. So all of us are to have a heart for missions, to have a heart to see the gospel sent to go out. So the gospel isn't to remain among one people group or in one location, the gospel is to be sent out by every local church in and in every way that they can. The second thing is the gospel is about going. Look at verses 4 to 12. While we recognize that not everyone is sent across borders, in fact, a very small percentage go out across borders in, in, the, search, uh, in, the, in the terms of uh, uh, being a missionary, we are all sent out in God's sovereignty to be a light to wherever he's planted us. And so you have this going component. Now, it may seem like sending and going are kind of the same thing, and they are, uh, but they're different. So sending is very easy for us to become detached from, right? We can be very comfortable praying a prayer for a missionary, maybe writing a check to a missionary, 
but never engaging ourselves. And the command is that we too are sent, therefore we too are to go. And that doesn't mean necessarily crossing borders. It means going exactly where God has planted us. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's to all of us as believers, that commission we've been given. So where you are in your daily life, that's where God has sent you. Until he calls you to go somewhere else, your school, your work, where you shop, your neighborhood, your community, your volunteering, your sports, your hobbies. And we see Barnabas and Paul obey the command to be sent, and they go in verse 4. And they travel to Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, just south of Turkey and west of Israel and Lebanon and Syria. And most of you know, Cyprus is where our family served before we came to Christ the King. So it's a special place for us. It's a place that's very close to our hearts. And I would love someday to tell you more. Some have suggested that maybe one Sunday evening we do a a report. Because all these places that we're looking at in Cyprus, as we look at Salamis, as we look at Paphos, I've got pictures I would love to show you to bring it to life, you know. To know these places are real. To know this is where Paul and Barnabas walked. To know this is where the gospel was first planted is such an exciting thing to see. And if you go to Salamis today, it's a city full of Greek and Roman ruins. And this is where Paul comes into. It's a bustling city. Uh, It says synagogues plural. Most likely had multiple synagogues. It was big enough to accommodate that. And Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, he's still Saul at this point. You understand, God didn't change Saul's name, right? All, all of the Hebrew people had their Hebrew name, their given name, and then they had a Greek name, which is what they used day in and day out. So we see the text changed that name, but it wasn't, God didn't change his name. He had Saul was his given name, that's a good Jewish name, and then Paul, which is a good Greek name, that was what his name became. So they arrive in Salamis, they go to the synagogue, and as we've seen previously in Acts, this was their starting point. They go to the synagogues. Why? Well, for pragmatic reasons, certainly, it was a great entry point to talk about spiritual matters. The people that showed up at the synagogues were interested in spiritual things. But it wasn't just for pragmatic reasons that they did this. As Paul explains in Romans 1.16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he ends that by saying to the Jew first and also to the Greek, or also to the Gentile. And we see that in many places in the New Testament, whereas there's this priority on the gospel going to the Jews first. And we see that even in this text, if you remember as we read through it in verses 45 and 46. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge for yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, now we're turning to go to the Gentiles. Throughout Scripture, we see that God has set the Jews apart. He chose them from among all other nations, not because they were great. He tells them that. It wasn't because you were beautiful. It wasn't because of your size. You were basically the run of the litter, and I picked you. That's my paraphrase. He gave his law through the Jews. He called them to be a light to the nations and a kingdom of priests. He sent his Messiah as a Jew. This is the way Paul wrote about it in Romans 9.4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there is a sense of privilege or priority for the Jewish people to hear the gospel. But we have to understand this in the context of covenant. We have to understand this in the context of covenant. For example, when we baptize an infant, we say the baptism does not save the child. And it doesn't. But it marks the child. It's a sign and a seal on the child's life that this child is being raised in a covenant community and a covenant family whereby they will hear the gospel. Unlike a child who isn't born in a family that knows the gospel. And so in the same way, and we pray to that end, we pray for them to come to saving faith. And so in the same way, we ought to pray for the Jewish people to see and know that Jesus is the Messiah. We ought to have a heart for Jewish evangelism. Paul explains further in Romans 9 that not all of Israel are true Israel. In verse 8, he says, This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. So does that mean that we discard them? And some talk this way, but no. We see that Paul says the exact opposite. In Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is how we ought to pray for the Jewish people. In Romans 9.3, he goes way farther than that. He says, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Where else does Paul write like that? I mean, he's passionate about this. So we too should have a heart for Jewish evangelism and should seek opportunities, if you have Jewish friends and Jewish neighbors, to point them to Jesus as the Messiah. So Barnabas and Saul started in the synagogue in Salamis, and then they worked their way across the island. Salamis is on the east side. It's about 115 miles over to Paphos. So this took some time as they walked their way across the island. And upon arriving, they find this is where the Romans have set up their rule. Paphos at this time was the capital. And there's the proconsul appointed by the, the Senate, the Roman Senate, Sergius Paulus. And he's interested in the gospel. Verse 7 says he actually summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. But there was this magician, this Bar-Jesus, also called Elymas, and he sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith, verse 8. And so Saul rebukes him, and he's judged with blindness for a time. But Sergius Paulus comes to saving faith. Look at how he responds in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God opened his eyes. Barnabas and Saul obeyed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they went. And in their going, they took the gospel message across the island of Cyprus. And then from Paphos, they set sail, and they headed north to Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different Antioch from the one that we've been looking at. But let me say this. I just encourage you. I said Cyprus is close to my heart. Pray for Cyprus. Cyprus is where the gospel seeds were first planted, and it's a nation today that knows little of that gospel. There are few people that know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Greek Orthodox churches on the southern part of the island, um, but they're gospelless. There's no gospel in the churches. Uh, it's a lot of works and superstition. So pray for the nation of Cyprus. Of course, the, nor- the northern third of the island is mostly Islamic. And so pray for the, the nation of Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, really two different nations. It's a divided place. Pray for them to come 
to the saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. So the third big point, the third component, we have the, the, this co- component of sending, that it's to go out, the gospel isn't to remain stagnant. We have the component of going, that we're to be a part of that, that we are to go ourselves with this gospel message. And then we have this component of telling. The gospel is a message to tell. The gospel of Jesus isn't a religion. It's not a set of rules or a system to belong to. It's not about church membership or even church attendance. Every other religion in the world describes of their God, of how you can come to their God, what you have to do, what you have to change, what you have to be. But the gospel is completely different. The gospel is the message that God makes the way for you. He comes to you. He seeks you. He saves you. He made the way for you. You can't earn the gospel. And this is what makes it unique from every other religion in the world. The section begins in verse 13 with Paul and his companions. And I already mentioned of how that switch was made. We now see him take the primary role. Uh, something happened during this time on Cyprus. God used it to, to hone these years of training and so forth since he came to saving faith. And now as they go on north to Antioch in Pisidia, um, he is now the leader. This is in modern-day Turkey. And the sermon that he now preaches is, a, is kind of a cameo or a snapshot of a sermon that he would have preached. And we've seen some different sermons through Acts, some different approaches. The content of the gospel is always the same, but the way of getting to that message of the gospel varies depending on the context. But this would have been a common one as he went into synagogues. Look at what he did. In verse 17, he tells the story, the history of the Jewish people. God delivers Israel from Egypt. Verse 18, he takes them. It says that, um, in verse 18, what was the wording of that? That he, he put up with them. Uh, and I've already flipped the page over there. He, it's something about he put up with them in, in, in the wilderness. I think that's interesting how that's worded. Uh, he brings them to the promised land in verse 19. He led them by judges in verse 20. And then they beg for a king. He gives them a king. It's not what they wanted. But then he gives them what they don't deserve in in David. And then it's through David's line that the promised Messiah comes. Verse 23. The one who would save. And so he zeroes in through their history to show them the person of Jesus. This is what it's about. And then as he gets to this, he begins unpacking who Jesus is and what he's done. He's the one who fulfilled all the prophecy. All of this prophecy that was talked about in the coming Messiah was pointing to Jesus. He was the innocent Lamb of God, but was killed, verse 28, unjustly. But then God raised him from the dead. And he focuses in now in verse 30 on the resurrection. And he unpacks what the resurrection is and what it means and how there are witnesses to this. And then he gets to the actual message of the gospel. 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus died so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is freed from the curse and the judgment of the law. We are then credited with the righteousness of Jesus by faith and adopted as sons and daughters. The law couldn't save anyone. No one could keep it perfectly. Church attendance cannot save anyone. It doesn't earn you a thing. Being in this building, and I stole this from Zach, so I'll footnote there. 
being in this building doesn't any more make you a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. Think about that. Your heritage cannot save you. No matter how many generations of Christians or people who claim to be Christians, it doesn't save you any more than the Jewish the Jews' heritage would save them. That's why the Jews need the gospel. Their heritage doesn't save them. Just because God set them apart and made them his people and gave his law through them, they still need saving faith in the person and work of Christ. Your good deeds can't save you. Your good will never outweigh your bad, no matter how hard you try. We can't be good enough. The Bible says none are righteous, no, not one. And even our attempts at righteousness... Even our best attempts at righteousness are filthy rags before God. Knowing who Jesus is doesn't save you. Believing in the existence of God doesn't save you. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. When I say only Jesus saves, here's what I mean. That we are not simply to believe about him, but we are to believe in him. We are to trust in Christ alone. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is in Christ alone, by faith alone, that we are saved. And our faith is not simply a hope. Our faith isn't simply, I hope it'll be okay, I hope this works, but it is a confidence in the truth. This doesn't mean that we don't struggle in our faith, but our faith is a confidence in the truth so that we can say with Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He was looking for the coming Messiah. We look back to the already come Messiah. And he goes on, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Again, it doesn't mean that our faith is perfect, that we don't doubt, that we don't sin. Of course, we struggle every day in our battle for faith to fight against sin. And every fight against sin is a battle for faith. It's a battle to believe what God has said. But in every fight and in every struggle, we come back to the truth that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you see, the gospel isn't just for the unbeliever. The gospel is for every one of us every day. That we come back to it again and again and again in an assurance that we are held, that we are saved, that we are secure. And we grow then in our appreciation of what the gospel is. As we grow, we see how much bigger the gospel is, and of course we see how much greater our sin is, which makes us realize again how much bigger the gospel is. And it's true especially when we come to the Lord's table today. To eat of this supper that he gave us. We can come and say, I believe, help my unbelief. But in coming, we can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for so great a salvation that we have in Christ. I pray that you would stir in our hearts to help us to see the beauty of the gospel Lord, I pray for those here who may not know Christ, that you would convict them of their sin and draw them to saving faith in Jesus today. And for those who do believe, Lord, would you grow their faith and increase it in confidence to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
and I will see him. Lord, thank you for this salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.